15 years have passed since Jennifer Servo's murder. A lot can change in 15 years. People grow up. They have kids of their own. Their perspectives change. They end relationships and friendships. And they start new relationships and new friendships. Sometimes people just drift apart. Sometimes people who were scared are no longer around the people they were scared of. And sometimes people just don't realize how important the information they have really is. I can't promise you that we'll solve Jennifer's case, but I can promise that together we have a better chance than any one of us working alone. Jennifer needs justice, and so does Abilene. So come along with me on my search for a real-life murderer. Jennifer's case needs to be back on people's minds and in people's everyday conversations. That's why we're doing this, because somewhere out there, there's a murderer who's had 15 years of freedom that they don't deserve. And because maybe, just maybe, we'll succeed. Hi everyone, welcome back to Justice Delayed, the unsolved homicide of Jennifer Olson Servo. I'm Sharon Newman Edwards, your host. So I have just a couple of announcements to make before we get started today. First off, I wanna tell you about a cool event that's coming up on November 10th and 11th in Dallas. It's called The Edge of Texas and it's put on by Texas Monthly Magazine. According to the website, it'll be a weekend-long celebration of Texas-focused food, music, people, and storytelling. But the main reason I'm going is to hear Carrie Max Cook speak. As many of you know, Carrie Max Cook is an author, an international speaker, a youth mentor, a wrongfully convicted man who spent two decades on Texas's death row, and a personal friend of mine. Legal scholars have called Carrie's case the worst case of misconduct in American history. Carrie will be interviewed live at the event by Michael Hall, executive editor of Texas Monthly. Carrie's session, appropriately named Waiting for Justice, is described on the website this way. For almost 40 years, Carrie Max Cook did everything to clear his name after being convicted of a horrifying murder in Tyler. So when he was finally exonerated, why did he ask for his conviction back? The session will allow the audience to experience Cook's sweeping saga and engage with the questions of how to improve our justice system through a mix of storytelling devices from narration to interview to video. Carrie speaks at 3 p.m. on Saturday, November 11th in the Jewel Ballroom in downtown Dallas. You can buy a two-day VIP weekend pass like we did, or just come for the speakers like Carrie Max Cook on Saturday from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. For a full list of events and speakers, go to edge.texasmonthly.com. In case you were wondering, this isn't a paid promotion. I'm attending this and telling you about it because I'm a supporter of Carrie's. I encourage anyone, even remotely near the Dallas-Fort Worth area, to come out and show your support for Carrie Max Cook at the Edge of Texas event on Saturday, November 11th. And remember to keep Carrie in your thoughts each and every Wednesday until the Criminal Court of Appeals finally rules on his case. Tickets are still available at edge.texasmonthly.com tickets. Secondly, at the end of the episode, I'm going to share a short podcast promo. They're not a paid sponsor either. They're true crime podcasters with a bit of a laid back style, and they discuss a lot of different cases that you've heard about in the news, including Casey Anthony, Dahlia DiPolito, and many more. Even a case about a crazy bank heist. 
So stay tuned later for more about that from Mandy and Melissa. Finally, on a much more serious note, there will be two content warnings in this episode due to short but descriptive information that may be difficult for some of you to listen to, especially Jennifer's family, friends, and any children. I'll give you ample warning when those segments are about to start and approximate length of time that the content will last and a buffer zone of several seconds of silence on either end in which to skip forward and then rejoin us. You can use your skip ahead button to make it easier. That's advice specifically for my mom. I'll be as accurate as I can with the timing. Just be cautious as you're rejoining us. And I guess just one more quick note, even though I said the last one was the last one. I've quoted a few people and articles in this episode, and although they felt free at the time to say the names of certain people, I don't. So when you hear me insert either the Montana boyfriend, the Abilene colleague, or any of the other highly encrypted code names I use in the podcast, just know that the person I'm quoting used a different, less mysterious moniker. I figure you guys all know that already, but it does tend to alter a quote somewhat, and I want to make sure you guys know that that part's all me. And there's a reason for it. So on to our episode. Last week, we talked about the beginning of the timeline, leading all the way up through the time that Jennifer hung up the phone early Monday morning, around 1.30 a.m., We've also been discussing how the two main suspects that Jennifer knew fit into the timeline. Today, we're going to finish that timeline, and I'll fill in the rest of what we know about the Montana boyfriend and the Abilene colleague. Well, probably not the rest of what we know, but a lot of it. This is episode five, After the Phone Call. Now to refresh your memory, there were two men seeking Jennifer's attentions during those last two months of her life. There was the Montana boyfriend, who was 35 years old at the time, and who had left his job and the life he'd built in Montana to move nearly 1,600 miles away to be with Jennifer, only to have her break up with him about three weeks later. And the Abilene colleague, who was 23 years old at the time, worked with Jennifer at the TV station in Abilene, and whom she may have dated briefly before her murder. Remember, according to the Abilene colleague, Jennifer had just left his apartment and had returned to her own apartment, alone, after at least one of the pair had thought they were being followed by an unknown car earlier that night. The Abilene colleague was the last known person to see Jennifer alive. Today, we're picking back up after the phone call Jennifer had with the college boyfriend. That phone call helps us lock in the timeline in the early morning hours of Monday, September 16, 2002, the day that Jennifer was murdered. Remember, the college boyfriend was Jennifer's long-term boyfriend during college, hence the name. But he's not considered a suspect because he was in Montana at the time that call was made, by whichever one of them it was made. I still don't have a definitive answer on who called whom. Police placed Jennifer's murder on Monday, September 16, 2002, after that phone call with the college boyfriend ended, so sometime after about 1.30 in the morning. Carlton Stowers tells us in his 2014 book, Girl in the Grave and Other True Crime Stories, that a neighbor in Jennifer's apartment complex, quote, reported briefly hearing loud noises coming from her apartment sometime around 3 a.m. that morning, unquote. Now, I haven't found a second source for that information yet, but if it's accurate, it helps us further narrow down the time of Jennifer's murder. Not by much, but at this point, every minute counts. Again, according to Stowers, around mid-morning on Monday, September 16th, 
the Abilene colleague called Jennifer's cell phone and got no answer. They may have had plans to see a movie that evening. Now, Katie Vine reported in her 2003 Cosmopolitan Magazine article, Why Can't They Find Her Killer, that when Jennifer didn't answer the phone, the Abilene colleague just assumed she was too tired to go out. If you want to read that article, it's available online at starlightenterprises.com, a website run by Bonnie M. Wells. The article was posted there with permission from Cosmopolitan Magazine. So the Cosmo article says that the Abilene colleague assumed Jennifer didn't answer her phone that Monday because she was too tired to go out. But here's the thing. According to Stower's book, later that day at the news station, the Abilene colleague reportedly confided, Stowers uses the word confided, to a female friend slash coworker of both his and Jennifer's, we'll call her the mutual friend slash coworker from now on, quote, that he felt Jennifer was trying to end their relationship, unquote. The Abilene colleague told her, I've left messages and she won't call me back. Messages, plural. Stowers goes on to write that the mutual friend slash coworker, quote, privately assumed the smitten Abilene colleague was indeed about to get the brush off, end quote. And she didn't think any more about it, according to her. This tells us several things, in my opinion. So here we go. First off, it seems to have made total sense to the mutual friend slash coworker why Jennifer wasn't answering her phone that morning. And the way Stowers tells it, the mutual friend slash coworker didn't even seem to question that that's what was going on. It also explains why the Abilene colleague didn't become alarmed right away either. He thought he knew why Jennifer wasn't answering his calls. He thought she was avoiding him. But I want to take a moment here to say that in his defense, I wouldn't be alarmed either if one of my friends didn't answer my call after I had just seen them the night before, even if we had plans for later that day. But remember, the Abilene colleague is the only reason we even know that he and Jennifer may have been followed by a mysterious car the night before. So he clearly knew about it, whether it was he or Jennifer that actually saw it. If you're not clear on this or you don't remember this part, you can refresh your memory back in episode four last week. But it still doesn't seem to have raised any alarm bells for him when he couldn't get a hold of Jennifer the very next morning after they thought they may have been followed. He also doesn't seem to have told the mutual friend slash coworker that day at the station about the car from the night before. If he had, you'd think it might have created more of a sense of urgency in one of them to get a hold of Jennifer. But maybe not. We never think these things can happen to us or the people we know. But clearly, they do. This exchange between the Abilene colleague and the mutual friend slash coworker also tells us that Jennifer either was dating or at least was being pursued by the Abilene colleague at the time of her murder. And that that was the perception among at least one person at the station, the mutual friend slash coworker. It also tells us that at least this coworker, the mutual friend slash coworker, was aware that Jennifer wasn't as interested in the Abilene colleague as he was in her. How do we know that? Well, she seemed to readily accept that Jennifer was just avoiding his calls. Jennifer may have told or hinted to some of her coworkers that she just wanted to be friends with the Abilene colleague. We don't know that. But the Abilene colleague has publicly admitted that Jennifer told him she just wanted to be friends, remember? I'll get to that in a second. Back to Stowers. He quotes the Abilene colleague as saying, we began seeing each other, though it was clear to me that she was just looking for a friend, someone to hang out with after work, 
or go with to a movie. I accepted that. She was just fun to be around. Finally, this exchange between the Abilene colleague and the mutual friend slash coworker just hours after Jennifer was murdered tells us, tells me, that the Abilene colleague felt like there was a relationship of some kind. Stowers' word going on between he and Jennifer at the time that Jennifer was murdered. And he felt like she was trying to end that relationship. Again, Stowers' words. But where did Stowers get the information about this conversation? And from whom? And what would that person say now? I'm pretty sure I know how to find out. And I'll keep you posted. But what about that other quote I mentioned a minute ago? The one in Jeff Martz's September 11th, 2007 article called She Could Have Gone Anywhere She Wanted To. The one where the Abilene colleague recounts how Jennifer told him she just wanted to be friends. I referenced it in last week's episode too. The Abilene colleague said, quote, she said she's not going to let any guy come in her way. So she had told me that she just wanted to just be close friends, unquote. Well, if he thought they were in a relationship at the time of her murder, when did she tell him that? So is this just a case of reporters getting it wrong, or is this a case of stories changing over time? I don't know, but that's why I read you so many of the quotes, so you can decide for yourself. Let me know what you think it all means. Share your thoughts on the Facebook discussion group. One final note on this. In the 2008 CBS 48 Hours Mystery episode with Harold Dow titled Deadline for Justice, which you can watch on YouTube anytime, the Abilene colleague also said about Jennifer, well, we hit it off as friends right off the bat, even though she had a boyfriend at the time living with her. As that kind of waned, we became closer. Remember last week when I told you that in Jeff Martz's article, one of Jennifer's friends back in Montana said that Jennifer felt like the Abilene colleague was, quote, very into her and she didn't want to hurt him, unquote? Yeah. So continuing with the timeline that Monday, Stowers tells us that later that night, the mutual friend slash coworker was told that the station needed someone to fill in on the Tuesday morning newscast, which was the next morning. And she tried to call Jennifer, but received no answer. She says in Stowers' book that this concerned her because, quote, Jennifer was always very conscientious about being available for work and returning calls, unquote. But it doesn't quite set off any alarm bells yet. Notice that she doesn't say it concerned her because of the story from the Abilene colleague about he and Jennifer possibly being followed by an unknown car the previous evening. I think she doesn't say it because the Abilene colleague didn't tell her about it that day. So when did she first hear the story about the car? Sometime during the day on Monday, Jennifer's mom tries again to reach her by phone and is unsuccessful. You'll remember that Jennifer's mom had also tried to call her the day before, Sunday, and had been unable to reach her then either. Tuesday, September 17th passes. Right now, I don't have any details about it to share, but I'll update you when I do. Wednesday, September 18th. The best I can tell from the multiple source articles, including Stowers, this same female coworker that we've been calling the mutual friend slash coworker had plans to meet up with Jennifer at Jennifer's place to hang out by the pool that afternoon, and she'd been unsuccessful in reaching her by phone to confirm their plans. The mutual friend slash coworker called the Abilene colleague and told him she was coming over to pick him up so they could go over to Jennifer's apartment together. 
According to a September 19, 2002 article by Dan Trigoboff, I hope I'm saying his name right, called Reporter Killed in Abilene, Jennifer had not responded to more than a dozen messages on her cell phone, and her friends noticed when they arrived at her apartment that Jennifer's car hadn't been moved in a couple of days. Those friends, we can only assume, are the Abilene colleague and the mutual friend slash coworker. Those friends, we can only assume based on other sources, are the Abilene colleague and the mutual friend slash coworker. Stower says that as the two parked, the Abilene colleague saw that the coffee table was still in Jennifer's car, and the mutual friend slash coworker remembers him saying, and I quote, that's not good. The two knocked on Jennifer's apartment door repeatedly, but there was no answer. The Abilene colleague called Jennifer's cell phone again while the mutual friend slash coworker tried her apartment door, which was locked. They both remarked that they'd never seen Jennifer's blinds completely closed before. Jennifer was known to routinely leave her blinds open slightly so her cat, Mr. Binks, could sit on the window ledge and look outside during the day. It helps to remember here that Jennifer lives on the second floor. Stowers says this is when the mutual friend slash coworker, a woman, remembers seeing an apartment maintenance man walking slowly along the sidewalk below, repeatedly glancing over his shoulder in their direction. She said, quote, he gave me the creeps, unquote. We don't know how loudly they were knocking or if they were calling out Jennifer's name through her door, but this comment about the maintenance man will gain a little more significance in just a few seconds. After receiving no answer at Jennifer's door, the mutual friend slash coworker returned the Abilene colleague to his apartment and she continued on to the TV station where she told her boss what had happened. Her boss was also Jennifer's boss. Their boss immediately called Jennifer's apartment building and asked the apartment manager to check on Jennifer. Now sources differ on this, but Stower says it was a female apartment manager that found Jennifer. He doesn't mention anyone else. The Trigoboff article says Jennifer was found, quote, by a manager and maintenance man at her apartment complex, unquote. I don't know about you, but this makes me wonder, was Jennifer found by two people, an apartment manager and a maintenance man, or just one person who is both an apartment manager and a maintenance man? Stowers writes specifically that Jennifer was found by, quote, a young woman, the apartment manager, unquote. And a few paragraphs later, he refers to the same person as, quote, the woman who just minutes earlier had discovered the body, unquote. So Stowers is pretty clear that a woman found Jennifer. But was someone else with her? A man, specifically a maintenance man, that we never really hear about, perhaps? And if so, why is any information about him so difficult to find? Soon after that, this is Wednesday, September 18th, police received the call, presumably from the apartment manager or the maintenance man, that Jennifer had been found in her apartment. The APD incident slash investigation report says, time reported, 1330. 1.30 p.m. According to that same article by Dan Trigoboff and the 48 Hours interview with the Abilene colleague, the day Jennifer's body was discovered, KRBC canceled their 5 p.m. news and dedicated their 6 p.m. newscast to Jennifer's death, filling the screen with a photo of Jennifer, her birth date, and her presumed date of death, which was thought at the time to be September 18th. As we know, police later determined that Jennifer had been murdered in the early morning hours of September 16th, two days earlier. Then on Friday, September 20th, 2002, 
two days after Jennifer was murdered. According to Katie Vine's article, the Abilene colleague meets with police and is taken into Jennifer's apartment where he points out something that's missing since the last time he was there. It's not stated when that last time was. The Abilene colleague is accompanied by his attorney, according to Stowers. Vine goes on to report that the police didn't want the Abilene colleague to disclose what it was that was missing from Jennifer's apartment, and to my knowledge, he still never has. Vine also quoted the Abilene colleague as saying, to me, the fact that they brought me into the apartment shows that I didn't do it. For the record, I didn't. Monday, September 23rd, exactly one week after her murder, Jennifer would have turned 23 years old. Thursday, September 26th, that morning, according to Carlton Stowers, four KRBC employees, including the Abilene colleague and the mutual friend slash coworker, flew to Montana on a chartered plane to attend Jennifer's funeral. At 2.30 p.m. that afternoon, Thursday, September 26th, Jennifer's funeral service, with full military honors, was held at Northridge Lutheran Church in Kalispell, Montana. I'm going to end the timeline there. We'll add more to it as we find out additional information, but for now, let's move on to the questions I promised to answer at the end of last week's episode. So there were five questions that I promised to answer this week. The first question was, why wasn't Jennifer found for more than two days? After hearing the rest of the timeline just now, I'm sure you've pretty much figured out the answer to this one already. But the essence of it is that because Jennifer worked four 10-hour days a week at the TV station, Thursdays through Sundays, her three-day weekend had just barely begun when she was murdered. Yes, she had plans, or tentative plans, with the Abilene colleague to see a movie on Monday. But it's understandable that when he called her that Monday morning, he just thought she was tired, or sleeping in, or avoiding him. I'm only guessing here, but think about how easy it is to rationalize why someone doesn't answer our phone call, even when we've made previous plans with them, or when we know they're expecting our call. In addition, Jennifer had moved nearly 1,600 miles away from home. She was new to Abilene, and her family didn't live close by. All they could do was call. And I know from my own personal experience, living nearly 1,000 miles away from my family, that if my family and friends got nervous or worried every time I didn't pick up a phone call from one of them, they'd be in a perpetual state of panic. And Jennifer didn't have a landline, just a cell phone. So if she didn't answer her cell phone, that was pretty much the only way to get a hold of her without going to her front door or calling the apartment management, which is exactly what ended up happening approximately two and a half days after Jennifer was last heard from. The next question I asked at the end of last week's episode is also one I've pretty much already answered. How was Jennifer's body discovered, and by whom? Since my description of the timeline today covered this in detail already, the short version is that Jennifer's co-workers, specifically I think it was the Abilene colleague and the mutual friend slash co-worker, became concerned when they hadn't heard from Jennifer all day Monday, all day Tuesday, and all morning on Wednesday. So they went over to her apartment and when they saw that her car didn't look like it had been moved, the coffee table was still in her car, her blinds were still down, and she didn't answer her door, one of them told their boss at the station, and he called Jennifer's apartment complex and asked if someone would go over to her apartment to check on her. When they did, they found her and called the police. Last week, I also posed the question, what evidence do we have to work with? The police know a lot more, of course, 
but since this is an open case, they're not required to divulge most of it. And so far, they're not. I literally got less than a page and a half in my open records request. So here we go. What evidence do we have? We know that the attack on Jennifer had to have started sometime after her phone call with the college boyfriend ended, which was at about 1.30 a.m. How long after they hung up did the attack begin? That we don't know. But if the Stowers information I mentioned earlier about the brief loud noises coming from Jennifer's apartment at around 3 a.m. is correct, that gives us a little better idea. We also know that Jennifer had plans later that day which she failed to show up for and we know that friends and or family were calling her as early as that morning and that all of those calls went unanswered. Specifically, Stowers says that the Abilene colleague tried to call Jennifer around mid-morning on Monday and got no answer. This is an important piece of information since we don't have the phone records and because of that we have to kind of estimate what we think mid-morning is. To be generous, I'll guess maybe between 10 and 10.30 a.m. Because if someone said they tried to call me around mid-morning, that's about when I'd think they meant. <laughs> it's as scientific as that. So assuming that the reason that Jennifer didn't answer that mid-morning call is because she had already been murdered, that would put Jennifer's time of death between 1.30 a.m. and maybe 10 or 10.30 a.m. Monday morning maybe even as narrow as between about 3 a.m. and 10.30 a.m., a span of approximately seven and a half hours, which is about as close as we can get it, for now. The sources are unanimous that there was no forced entry or damage to Jennifer's apartment door, causing most who have speculated about it, including the lead investigator who gave an interview to 48 Hours Mystery, to conclude that Jennifer's killer was probably someone she knew. In fact, that's one of the few pieces of information that was in my open records request. Quote, forced entry, unquote, with a check mark in the no box. That and time reported, 1330. There's a little more than that, but you get the idea. Now we know from police that at the time that Jennifer was murdered, she was wearing shorts and a t-shirt, clothes that she reportedly often wore to bed, according to Katie Vine's article. As we've discussed previously, Jennifer was a very safety-conscious person, renting a mailbox instead of having her mail delivered directly to her apartment, for example. And you'll remember that her friends have said repeatedly that Jennifer wouldn't have opened her door to someone she didn't know. And on that early Monday morning, it would have been well after 1 o'clock in the morning when someone came to her door. That also lends credence to the theory that her killer may have been someone Jennifer knew. We also know Jennifer's cause of death. She had been hit in the head at least three times with a blunt object, and she had internal bruising in her neck, according to Katie Vine and many others. Police have said publicly in the 48 Hours mystery episode that either one or both could have killed her. According to Stowers and others, the medical examiner could not suggest what type of weapon had caused Jennifer's multiple head wounds, and no obvious murder weapon was recovered from the scene by police. So we've reached the first of our two content warnings for this episode. If you have children in the room or you'd rather not hear intimate details about Jennifer, when you hear a few seconds of silence, you'll want to skip ahead about 45 seconds. I'm not going to be unnecessarily graphic, but the details will be difficult for some. I'll give you a few seconds of silence, both at the beginning and at the end of this segment, to skip ahead safely if you so choose. If you skip ahead about 45 seconds and you hear several seconds of silence, you're in the right place. 
For those of you who are still with me, there was some intimate information relayed by two of Jennifer's friends who didn't know each other, one friend from Montana and the other from Abilene. They both said that the Montana boyfriend wanted to choke or strangle Jennifer when they were being intimate. One of those friends told March that Jennifer didn't like it. But according to March, the other friend said in part, referring to Jennifer, quote, she never felt threatened by it or scared, unquote. But it's definitely a piece of information that could end up being relevant, considering that Jennifer's cause of death was strangulation, blunt force head trauma, or both. I'm going to leave a few moments of silence here for the others to catch back up with us. If you skip forward, now is a good time to rejoin us. Continuing on with the evidence. We know from Katie Vine that police collected carpeting, bedding, hair samples, and blood samples from Jennifer's apartment. Stowers tells us that police were hoping to find Jennifer's killer's blood mixed in with her own from the samples taken from her living room carpet and bathroom floor. Kind of obvious, I guess. And I told you in episode two that according to Katie Vine, the police collected the DNA of six people, including the Montana boyfriend and the Abilene colleague. Obviously, no arrests have ever been made. According to Stowers, both the Montana boyfriend and the Abilene colleague gave their DNA samples voluntarily. Stowers also tells us that in the beginning of the investigation, two sergeants and eight investigators worked on the case, and a local officer accompanied Jennifer's body to Fort Worth, where her autopsy was performed. We also know from Stowers that police, quote, searched databases for information on the victim's friends and associates, both in Abilene and back in Montana. They continued to gather, catalog, and deliver evidence to the Tarrant County Medical Examiner's Office, unquote. For those of you who aren't sure, Tarrant County is basically Fort Worth. Abilene is about 150 miles, or about 2 hours and 15 minutes or so, almost directly west of Fort Worth, on I-20. Katie Vine also tells us that the forensic testing was done by the Tarrant County Medical Examiner in Fort Worth. As a small town, Abilene didn't and probably still doesn't have the type of high-tech equipment that Tarrant County can afford. According to censusviewer.com, Abilene had a population of about 116,000 people in 2002. So the Abilene Police Department reached out to a larger department with higher-tech equipment in order to get the most accurate and scientifically advanced results possible at that time. You may be asking yourself right now, have any DNA or other forensic tests been rerun since 2002? With the advances in forensics in the last 15 years, it would make sense. But again, we just don't know the answer to that. If you think way back to episode one, I told you that the APD was looking into some possible leads as recently as February 2016, according to the current detective on the case, John Wilson. Leads, plural, according to an article called New Leads Spark in Abilene Reporter's Murder on CBS7.com. Unfortunately, we don't know whether those leads were the result of tips that were called in, new DNA tests being run, or something else altogether. And we also know that, at least so far, DNA hasn't solved Jennifer's case. We know only that the DNA of both the Montana boyfriend and the Abilene colleague were found in Jennifer's apartment, according to Jeff Martz's research. I believe it's one of the reasons the police think her killer was someone she knew. But DNA doesn't do much to pinpoint a suspect when it's all from people who had legitimate reasons to be in her apartment. The only blood that was found in September 2002 belonged to Jennifer, according to Katie Vine's article, 
and we can only assume that any fingerprints, hair, or saliva collected belonged to someone with whom she had a known relationship in the time prior to her murder. If they had been traceable to anyone else, it's likely we would have had an arrest long before now. According to Katie Vine's article, the lead detective said, quote, the ultimate DNA would show someone who had no reason to be there or who says they hadn't been in the house in more than a month before her death, unquote. Clearly, that kind of DNA was never found. But why does he specifically reference someone who hadn't been in Jennifer's apartment in more than a month? I know none of us knew as much about DNA back in 2002, but why does he make that particular distinction? We all know DNA lasts longer than a month, and Jennifer had only lived in Abilene and in that apartment for two months. I think I said this in a previous episode, but wouldn't there be lots of unknown DNA in Jennifer's apartment from previous tenants and their guests? Your guess is as good as mine. So this brings us to our second and final content warning for this episode. Again, if you have children in the room or you'd rather not hear some of the more disturbing and difficult details of Jennifer's murder, when you hear a few seconds of silence, skip ahead about two and a half minutes. Again, I'm not going to be overly graphic, but the details can be tough for some to listen to. I'll give you a few seconds of silence at the beginning and the end of this segment like before, so you can skip ahead safely if you choose. If you skip ahead about two and a half minutes and you hear several seconds of silence, you're in the right place. And remember to be cautious as you rejoin us. For those of you who are still here, make no mistake about it, this was a violent act. Jennifer was struck in the head at least three times with a blunt object and strangled, either one or both of which could have killed her according to an interview with a detective in that 48 Hours mystery episode I keep referencing. As I said earlier, no obvious murder weapon was ever recovered. There was evidence of a sexual assault consisting of internal bruising, though no DNA from a sexual assault was recovered, according to Katie Vine. But even with all of that, according to Stowers, nothing inside Jennifer's small apartment showed signs of a violent struggle prior to the blows that left her either unconscious or killed her except for a single fractured fingernail on her right hand. This is not the end of the content warning. According to Stowers, the medical examiner, quote, found no skin under her fingernails, nothing to indicate that she had fought with her attacker, unquote. Now, all the sources pretty much agree that Jennifer was attacked in her living room, where there was a large area of blood, according to the lead detective, speaking to 48 Hours Mystery. As you'll remember from her mom's interview, the living room is where Jennifer's bed was, and she was using the small bedroom as a closet. There was also a blood trail leading from that large blood stain in her living room to the nearby bathroom where Jennifer had been dragged and then left, according to that same 48 Hours mystery episode. But why? Why move her at all? I believe this had to have a purpose. It all had to have a purpose, or the killer wouldn't have taken the time to do it. The perpetrator surely wouldn't have wanted to stay in Jennifer's apartment any longer than necessary, would they? Their risk of getting caught would only increase with every second that ticked past, and even an inexperienced killer would have known that. The fact that her murder occurred in the middle of the night may have given the killer some added assurance that no one was likely to catch them there, but I still can't imagine them just taking their time. They had no way of knowing if someone had seen or heard something suspicious that night, and remember, there were those brief, loud noises that a neighbor reportedly heard coming from Jennifer's apartment at around 3 o'clock in the morning. 
I don't know why Jennifer was moved out of the living room and left lying on her bathroom floor, but I think it's an important detail. And if the police know, they're not telling. Again, I'm leaving a few moments of silence here for the others to catch back up with us. If you skip forward because of the content warning, now is a good time to rejoin us. So we're picking back up with the evidence we have in Jennifer's case. We know from multiple sources that both the Montana boyfriend and the Abilene colleague were questioned by police. But I don't have dates on those interviews, or how many interviews each one gave, or was asked to give. Aside from a brief mention by Stowers that in the days following the crime, detectives spoke to the Montana boyfriend on four occasions. There's no mention of how many times the Abilene colleague was interviewed, but we know he was, and that he was considered cooperative by police. According to the 48 Hours Mystery episode, neither of the men had a criminal history at the time, and according to my own research, neither seems to have a criminal history now. According to Stowers, the lead detective, and I quote, compiled the list of no fewer than 10 people, co-workers, apartment complex neighbors, people in Montana, and the person we're calling the Montana boyfriend, whom he and fellow investigators believed might provide more information. However, interviews of the residents of the apartment complex produced no relevant eyewitnesses, and no one reported seeing anyone suspicious leaving Jennifer's apartment, according to one of the detectives in the 48 Hours Mystery episode. According to Katie Vine's article, dozens, plural, dozens of people were interviewed. And there's a puzzling report in Carlton Stowers' book about one of Jennifer's neighbors who, upon being approached for an interview, informed police that he'd already hired an attorney and promptly shut his door. And as far as we know, that was the end of that. Hopefully the police looked into it. But it's strange, to say the least. According to several sources, including America's Most Wanted's archived website, web.archive.org, and Carlton Stowers' book, Jennifer's purse, cell phone, car keys, and some DVDs were missing. However, nothing suggested robbery, according to the police, maybe especially not those oddly missing DVDs. According to the same article from America's Most Wanted called Unknown Jennifer Servo Killer, neither Jennifer's credit cards nor her cell phone were ever used after her death. Though there is an odd, but in the end, probably not very relevant story about Jennifer's library card that I'll tell you about sometime. Another question from last week's episode was, what are the main suspect's alibis? After her murder, it seems that many of Jennifer's friends and family pointed their fingers towards the Montana boyfriend. Katie Vine says that after Jennifer's murder, Jennifer's fellow employees at the station immediately implicated the Montana boyfriend, even though they had never met him. The Abilene colleague did an interview with CBS in which he stated, quote, everyone was like, go find the Montana boyfriend. I remember those three words, unquote. Of course, the Abilene colleague named the Montana boyfriend, which is why the number of words is off in the quote, but I'm going to refrain from doing so for now. At least one coworker and mutual friend of Jennifer and the Abilene colleagues at KRBC seemed sure that the Abilene colleague would not have had anything to do with Jennifer's murder, saying in part, according to Jeff Martz's article, there's no way. It's not an alibi, but it's a strong endorsement. The Abilene colleague said in that 48 hours mystery interview around 2007 or 8 that it didn't occur to him at first that he even was a suspect. Quote, being a suspect, you know, it didn't click in my mind at first. I'm like, 
oh, they just need to know when I saw her last, you know? It just didn't click, unquote. Interestingly enough, both men had the same, or at least very similar, alibis. According to Katie Vine and many other sources, they were both home, alone, and probably asleep, depending on what time Jennifer's murder actually occurred. According to an interview with the lead detective on 48 Hours Mystery, the Montana boyfriend was at his own apartment. There were no witnesses, and it couldn't be verified. Not an unusual alibi for 1.30 in the morning. Or later. Especially if you're single. I couldn't find anything quite as specific about the Abilene colleague's alibi, but it seems to be pretty much the same. The final question I said I'd answer this week was, where have they, the Montana boyfriend and the Abilene colleague, been over the last 15 years? Before we start, please don't forget that at least one of these two men is innocent, and maybe both. According to Katie Vine's article, which she wrote in 2003, both men, in an odd coincidence, relocated to new cities in May 2003, less than a year after Jennifer's murder. The Montana boyfriend re-enlisted in the military and served a one-year overseas tour shortly after that. He's continued to serve in our armed forces for many years. The Abilene colleague found a new job in the Midwest. Both have moved on to other cities since then, many other cities. At last count, the Montana boyfriend and the Abilene colleague have each lived in at least six different cities, and maybe as many as eight, each since moving away from Abilene in 2003. Remember, Jennifer was 22 years old when she was murdered in 2002. The Abilene colleague was 23 then, and the Montana boyfriend was 35. Jennifer would be 38 years old now. The Abilene colleague is 38. And not too long ago, the Montana boyfriend turned 50. Like I said, a lot can happen in 15 years. I think it's safe to say that both men must have met a lot of people over the last 15 years. They've lived in a total of at least 12 different cities in the United States, in a total of at least 11 different states between the two of them. They've lived from coast to coast and many places in between. And I know there have been trips overseas, business or otherwise. That's why it's so important that we continue to get the word out about Jennifer's case. We need to reach the person or persons who have information about who murdered Jennifer. There was a lot of information in this episode, so next week I'll answer some listener questions. Be sure to submit them to the Facebook discussion group or through email or voicemail by this Tuesday at noon central time. In the meantime, brainstorm with me. Help guide this investigation by sharing your thoughts and ideas. And listen along as I conduct this sometimes brave, definitely challenging, but mostly heartbreaking investigation into Jennifer's murder. This case is our call to action. So keep getting the word out about Jennifer's case. Our listenership is growing. I can see in our numbers that as people learn about the podcast, they're going back and starting with episode one. We've gained a lot of new listeners just in October so far. So keep up the great work, guys. And thank you. So continue to post about Jennifer. Share the podcast promos and the new episodes as they're released. 
Keep inviting your friends and family to join our discussion group on Facebook. Post on Instagram or Twitter and use the hashtag Jennifer Servo or hashtag Solve Jennifer Servo's Murder. Follow us on Twitter at Justice Delayed P. That's Justice Delayed, followed by the letter P as in podcast. And on Instagram at Justice Delayed Pod. Email me with questions and ideas about additional avenues of investigation at Sharon at JusticeDelayedPod.com. Remember, every time you mention Jennifer's case, it increases the chance that we'll actually reach the people we need to reach, whoever they are and wherever they are. A lot can change in 15 years. If you know anything about Jennifer's case, or if you just think you might, contact me. It can be anonymous if it needs to be. If you were even a peripheral part of this case and you want your story told, contact me even if you think it's insignificant. Every piece of information helps, especially now. If you know someone who is part of this case, let them know about the podcast and encourage them to contact me and tell their story. You can call my dedicated voicemail line at 210-836-8680, or you can contact me any of the other ways noted in this episode. If you have a tip about this case, contact the Abilene Police Department at 325 673 8331 or Crime Stoppers at 325-676-TIPS. You can also find those phone numbers on our website at justicedelayedpod.com or if you're uncomfortable contacting either of those agencies, contact me and I'll help get your information to the right people. Be sure to subscribe to our feed if you haven't already so you'll get our latest episodes as soon as they drop. And be sure to give us a five-star rating and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts but only if you like us a lot. It really does help the podcast gain more listeners and reach more people. And if you don't like us so much, thanks for hanging in there anyway. But don't rate us. We're cool without it. If you post a five-star review, I'll give you a shout-out on next week's episode. Speaking of shout-outs, this one is to all of you. Because of you guys going out and sharing the podcast, we've been getting so many downloads. This has been our biggest week yet, so thank you for spreading the word about Jennifer's case. Right now, we're on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Libsyn, and there are links to our episodes at the bottom of our justicedelayedpod.com website. If you have a favorite place to listen to your podcast, let me know, and I'll do my best to add it. The next episode drops Thursday, so join me as I actively search for justice in the form of a murderer. Remember to come and show your support for my friend, Carrie Max Cook, on Saturday, November 11th at 3 p.m. in the Jewel Ballroom in downtown Dallas, at the Edge of Texas event by Texas Monthly Magazine. Come for the whole event or just come to hear Carrie speak. And please continue to keep Carrie in your thoughts each and every Wednesday until the Criminal Court of Appeals finally rules on his case. It's been well over a year now. I'll update you here when there are any developments. You can find out more about the event and buy tickets for one or all three events, November 10th through the 11th at edge.texasmonthly.com. But don't miss Carrie at 3 p.m. on Saturday, November 11th. And don't worry if you miss the web address for the Edge of Texas event. It'll be in the show notes. Don't forget about the Q&A episode coming up Thursday. Get your questions submitted by Tuesday at noon so I can try to answer them in time for the show. Remember to participate in the brainstorming, send me suggestions for leads to pursue, and ask questions all on our Facebook discussion group. Or just follow along as I try not to get into too much trouble. 
So join me next Thursday for more about the unsolved homicide of Jennifer Olson Servo. Now here's that promo I promised you earlier from the Moms of Murder podcast. Hey guys, this is Mandy and Melissa from Moms and Murder, a true crime podcast featuring two moms who think they're funny. Trust us guys, we are. Join us each week as we discuss both the infamous and unfamiliar stories in the world of true crime. You can check us out on our website at momsandmurder.com and also connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We release new episodes on Tuesdays, so we hope you'll check us out. Justice Delayed is a Numanity LLC production. I want to say thank you to Jennifer's family for being so helpful and cooperative throughout this process, even though it isn't easy to relive this kind of pain week after week. All music for this episode is provided by Lee Rosevere. You can find his music at happypeppyrecords.ca. Our logo was created by Caitlin Spencer. My editor, web designer, and all-around tech expert is none other than my husband, David Edwards. My sources for this episode are detailed in the show notes as they were last week, along with information on both of the promos. Our success depends on your participation, so remember to send in any leads you think I should pursue or any questions you have about the case. This is Sharon, and I'll be back.